WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 341.5. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 914 in the Holiday Inn in Knoxville, Tennessee. Today's show is recorded on the 26th of September, 2018. episode your feedback and your feedback and and your feedback and everyone else's feedback it's a feedback extra and no plain tail that's it just feedback so get all settled in tray tables and CPACs in their upright and long positions electronic devices powered on flight 341.5 is ready for pushback Hello, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a legacy carrier here in the United States of America. And joining me from his studio in England across the pond, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, our favorite captain in the uk well not our fit yeah it's, he's our favorite captain nick hi hey jeff well i'm really looking forward to this no messing about straight to the feedback and nothing but fun nothing but good stuff great answers from us well answers from us and also joining us from the north side of atlanta In his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka, connoisseur, motorcycle rider, party boat skipper, scuba diving instructor, and so many more things, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, but ain't nothing more important than being an APG host, though. So, uh, there you co-host, go, APG so. host. Absolutely. So looking forward to another, uh, well, just a feedback show here, I guess, and uh, 341.5. Yeah. All right. Now, we can get your band to stop playing. Okay, stop playing. You know, but I have them in the background here. They're, they're just, they just, they came over, volunteered to play today. High energy, high, high uh, something. High. High. High voltage. <laughs> high on something. Anyway, um, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, just arrived uh, a little bit ago. And uh, it was a, a long day. I was just discussing a little bit of this before we went on air. I uh, showed up to the gate this morning, and um, another captain was there. And I'm thinking, oh, good, I get to go home. <laughs> nah, um, it was a line check. Our company is doing a line check blitz um, this month to kind of get um, some of the some of the information out there that they need to. Uh, expressed to us and also just to kind of you know take the pulse of the operation see how we're doing operationally and of course i watered his eyes yeah it was because he was crying it was so bad but um went to uh, i highly St. doubt louis. that jeff <laughs> went to st louis and back 
And um, anyway, uh, good flights. And uh, here I am, short little hop from Atlanta to Knoxville. Weather is crappy. I can attest to that here in the uh, southeastern United States. Rainy and everything. It's probably pretty rainy right now where you are, isn't it, Dana? Yeah, just had some uh, thunder boomers roll through here. So it's been rainy. I'm glad and, I wasn't there for that. And uh, a lot of thunderstorms going on. And thank God the lights aren't flashing, though, just outside. Yeah, I'm glad that you still have power so we can do the show. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, Nick, uh, I understand you have some company in town? Yeah, a couple of uh, Canadians have just pitched up out of the blue. I tried to turn them away, but they insisted they were related to me. So <laughs> it looks like they're going to have to stay for a few days before they head off on a cruise. So, yeah, my big brother is uh, here and his lovely wife who uh, works for a uh, Canadian legacy airline. Uh, in fact, they both did. So uh, we've got a bit of an aviation family going on here. Yeah, you do. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so do they like your shirt? You're wearing um, a very nice uh, Canadian themes shirt aren't you i uh, know this is whatever so they oh i'm the, sorry uh i i uh they, uh, i try and do something different each time but uh yeah. yeah i've got plenty of my canadian air force hats which of course i sport courtesy of liz thank you very much indeed producer liz yes thank you liz yes thank you Thanks liz i should have okay. mine on today i guess but i didn't i described the boston red sox hat i'm sorry that's because we're going to playoffs so, uh, congratulations. How those? Uh, how, how's the uh, football thing going, uh, Dana? Oh, you <laughs> just are really looking to tick me off, aren't you? <laughs> okay, Sunday we'll was on. not a very good day. <laughs> and you went. You left us early on the uh, last recorded show, which is just Sunday, just a couple of days ago. Um, and you went to the new Mercedes Benz. Um, stadium. What do they call that? Stadium. Yep. And uh, how was that? You know, it's. Uh, Honestly, it's a beautiful stadium, but it's kind of drab. I mean, it's just uh, basically cinder block walls when you walk, you know, up and down the uh, up and down the uh, the uh, concourses, I guess you'd call them, um, and just gray paint. So, but the stadium itself uh, nicely appointed with uh, nice restaurants, uh, really good concessions, fairly priced. When I say fairly, I mean fair, like not overly priced. Uh, concessions for the most part and uh, the stadium itself uh, rocked out so it was uh, it was fun it was really fun to be there we had really good seats however the Falcons uh, defense couldn't do a thing to stop the offense of New Orleans and thus they lost the game in overtime so that's fun to watch and then went home over to my buddy's house because the, the ones that that uh, my buddy that took me uh, his wife is from New England area and also is a Pats fan so we watched the night game over their house, and uh, yeah, I don't even want to talk about that one. So okay, but that's about as much interesting that I, or anything interesting that I have talked about at this point. Okay, yeah, as I said, we just recorded on Sunday our last regular show, um, episode three forty one. This is three forty one point five to designate that this is an extra show for you. If you're a patron of the show and you pay a certain amount for each episode, you will not be charged for this. This one is free. This one's on us. So thank you uh, very much for being patrons. And while we're speaking of that, might as well just move right now. No, wait. Yeah. No, we'll wait. Wait. We'll wait. Okay. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to find the button that says incoming messages. And I was going to say there's something. All right. 
Go ahead. Very interesting that happened this week for me. Yes. Yes, I haven't flown yet since September 1st. And that's that's supposed to be news. Yeah, to, that's uh, news. I, I figured I'd update everybody on the fact that I still haven't flown, so I'm going to be quiet okay. now. <laughs> wow! Wow! All right, here we go. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's see if I can find the proper page here for the show, Seth is going to lead us off this morning. Uh, He says, Greetings, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. I'm a new listener to the show, and i got to say, I'm only a couple of episodes in, and I'm totally hooked. I just finished APG 337, and I was quite amused to hear you bring up the suicidal EA-18 engine incident that happened several months back. Having recently served as an F-16 crew chief for six years, I was stationed at Nellis at the time, and coincidentally had a front row seat to the whole ordeal as it took place. A few co-workers and I were performing a handful of ops checks on the line that day, and shortly after we powered down our ground equipment, I heard what I can only describe as a mix between a sporadic engine backfire and the simulation carpet bombing occasionally witnessed at air shows. I turned around to see the aircraft aborting takeoff with the lower engine compartment erupting into flames approximately half way down the almost two-mile runway. As soon as it came to a full stop, full stop, the entire back half of the fuselage became engulfed in flames and smoke, but we could see the air crew jump over the side of the canopy sill and run to safety. I'm sure the event only took a few brief moments, but time seemed to stand still as I was watching, especially since I'd never seen an incident of that magnitude in person before. Not that I enjoy watching valuable aircraft crash and burn, but I dare say that it was pretty darn cool, given that ultimately nobody was injured. I apologize for the quality, but here are a couple of photos if you're interested. Yes, we're always interested in photos from our from our listeners, uh, Seth. Uh, he says, anyway, that's just my account, so I figured I'd share with you and the crew. Thanks for putting on the awesome show, and I look forward to the next episode. Best wishes, Seth. And so he included some pictures of uh, something that <laughs> the last one there has. Uh, he, he wrote in air crew and has some arrows pointing to down to it. So I guess if you zoom in, you can see the air crew members running away from this black smoldering ball of thing. fire. Yeah. Yeah. Ball of fire on the, on the runway or just to the side of the runway. Um, yeah, that's cool. Uh, we remember we talked about that, uh, incident, captain Nick, uh, you were telling us about the, that particular version of the, uh, F 18, the EA 18. Yeah. The Aussies have got some, uh, super Hornets growlers and, uh, this one looked like it suffered a catastrophic engine, uh, disintegration during the takeoff run guys did a very good job to, uh, uh, not abandon the aircraft. Uh, they managed to keep it safely on the ground and uh, reject the takeoff. And they uh, it looks like they jumped clear and took a uh, suitably fast exit stage left uh, in order to separate themselves from the burning machines. Just as as Seth says, uh, very sad to see such an expensive and uh, vital piece of equipment just uh, burning away there. And didn't we say on the last show, or the last time we talked about this episode or this incident, that uh, they thought that the uh, that Australia was going to try to get some 
reimbursement or something from the yeah i haven't heard any more about that um yeah. i've got a few contacts but no one said anything so uh I, i'm guessing that's all happening behind the scenes most likely probably best not to air that dirty laundry yeah okay um thanks seth and uh we're happy to have you on board absolutely uh is he a is he a Sith Lord, I don't know. No, not Sith, a Seth. Oh, Seth Lord. Am I okay, mispronouncing right. that as well? Fair I mean, enough. do we Okay. I just wanted to ask him what color his uh, you know, his lightsaber. Lightsaber. Yeah. His saber was, yes. All right. Uh, let's move on to number 2. Our producer Liz put this in the feedback folder thinking that we'd cover it just because she's the producer. Yeah. <laughs> Skip it. And, I think we're and she obliged. Was right. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and cover it because she's our producer. Um, she says, Acme's sister airline insists in returning some movie history to its rightful place. Too bad they didn't fly Acme. No kidding. They went with our uh, sister airline, Delta, instead. Uh, they say there's no place like home. And after 13 years missing, Dorothy's stolen ruby red slippers are finally back in their rightful place with a little assistance from Delta. Wednesday evening, July 11th, Dan Welcome, Operations Service Manager at Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport, received a call with a mysterious request from the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. I was told the FBI has a unique situation, he says. Two agents would be taking a short trip the next day from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C. and back and carrying a large high-value object, that couldn't go in the cargo hold or in the overhead bin. They needed to be seated in the same row with an empty seat between them for the package. I had no idea what it was, just that the FBI needed to be in constant contact. Welcome coordinated seating arrangements for both flights with help from Global Assistance in Atlanta. He also worked with airport customer service in Minneapolis-St. Paul to ensure there were no issues during boarding and contacted in-flight service, so the flight attendants were briefed in advance. Mike Robles, one of the flight attendants on board, remembered the trip. He says, they pre-boarded with the package, and I offered them coffee and snacks. They told me they had been busy traveling in the last few days and were transporting a high-profile package. It was a box, or it was in a box with a fragile sticker, fragile, and highly guarded. Dana Weber, another flight attendant, said the, the agents let her guess what was in the box. They told me to watch the news in the coming weeks and maybe I would figure out what it was. Months later, on September 4th, the FBI revealed that the iconic red slippers from The Wizard of Oz, stolen in 2005 from the Judy Garland Museum in her hometown of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, had been recovered in a sting operation that ended in Minneapolis. During that July trip to D.C., the slippers had been transported to the Smithsonian Institute, uh, Institution's National Museum of American History, where a second pair has been on display since 1979, for comparison. Delta learned a few days later exactly what had been on board those two flights. Flight attendant Samantha Taylor said the airline and its people truly do play a part in the extraordinary. We fly so many different law enforcement officers, political figures, and celebrities that sometimes I think we are accustomed to not being surprised. But I would never have guessed Dorothy's slippers were in a package safeguarded by the FBI on board. Not one, but two flights I worked. 
FBI officials told Delta they were appreciative of the quick accommodations for the special request. Welcome said it was part of the job and he didn't think twice about it. What a priceless moment for Delta, he said. Although it took far more than three clicks of the heels to bring an end to a 13-year mystery. Oh, I see what they did there. Um, Weber is glad to finally learn its outcome. It's great knowing that such an important piece of culture is safe and where it should be. And that was from... Well, hang on a minute. Shouldn't it yeah. be in Kansas? Well, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd think, think so. so yeah. why, why are they taking it to Minneapolis? And then Grand Rapids, of all yeah. places. Oh, I know why, because Grand Rapids has great beer, craft beer. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I don't even <laughs> I like no beer, idea. and I think it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't, that's a good question. I'm not sure why Grand Rapids is the um, museum for the uh, the Judy Garland. Maybe Judy Garland... Garland is from Grand Rapids. I bet that's the reason. Hometown of Grand Rapids, Minnesota. We're getting you're getting that confused. Well, it does say uh, her hometown of Grand Rapids, but oh, I'm Minnesota. Thinking, oh, yeah, what am I saying? Minnesota. Minnesota. Oh, I was so saying the, Missouri. The, the slippers went to the Smithsonian Michigan. in Washington. Nah, no, well, they, they took to, them there to compare them with the other pair to make sure that they were genuine. Yes, and that was the reason for the journey. But they were going to end up in Grand Rapids. That is correct. God, I'm drunk, and even I knew that. <laughs> Dana, you need to pay attention. <laughs> I'm reading okay. it back here. and I... Reading comprehension. Yeah, see. that's okay. Take a stripe no, away. No, no. See, that's why I'm getting confused. Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I know. I'm sorry. I said, well, I just said Grand Rapids. but uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. But I don't think I said, did I say Michigan? I don't know. I don't we'll know. see. Maybe it is. Anyway, but uh, yes, uh Captain Nick is correct. They went to D.C. to go to the Smithsonian to compare it with the other pair to make sure that these were authentic. And then they went back. So um, what's the most expensive thing you guys have ever flown with on your aircraft? Millions um, and millions of dollars from the Brinks truck. Ah. Yeah, I had a few, uh, a few tons of used banknotes. It must have been in gold bullion. But... Uh, but all honestly, in all honesty, the most valuable thing I've ever flown was actually into Grand Rapids from Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I'm uh, trying to remember his name because I'm terrible with names. Um, but I'll remember it. We flew home a World War II private that they had found after all these years, and that was just less than a year ago. Um, I think. Yeah, I remember you telling us about it on our show. Yeah, it was on the show. So uh, I think that is far more valuable than anything um, anybody could ever carry. Sure. I understand that. I think, I don't know how uh, valuable the, uh, the ancient Chinese um, instrument was that we uh, transported <laughs> and and uh, ended up breaking into little pieces <laughs> what i don't want to talk about it but uh it was not a good it was not a good day for acme where <laughs> <laughs> they were they were rushing to get the door closed i think it was a it was either at LaGuardia or kennedy i forget well, which a, i think it was, it was a Ming uh, vase. they had they had flown all the way from china and they were going to atlanta for some kind of a concert and they were using these uh heirloom like authentic heirloom instruments chinese instruments and <laughs> they said, well, we don't have any room for, for their bags. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of any of this. And they said, well, we'll just, you know, we'll have to check these or gate check them. 
And uh, apparently the uh, baggage handlers didn't do a very good job. And and, uh, the guy opened up the case when we got to Atlanta and... uh, it, uh, that was it was it made me want to cry actually oh, no. and of course we couldn't really communicate with the guy because he didn't know english and we didn't know chinese and it was a big mess uh-uh. not a, it was not good no so anyway let's not dwell on that um peter mason counter was his name i had to look it up i'm sorry we have oh, to I'm get our accuracy above 50 percent. yeah is there good a reason that. for that what for accuracy or well why we need <laughs> to no be above fifty percent? I'm I'm quite happy with fifty percent. HR is not here to keep us in line. Yeah. Uh, the girls away, the boys must play. Speaking of accuracy, Liz uh, sent a little message in her little private chat. She said, I did say Minnesota. I did not say the other one. Oops. So. Hmm. Okay. Uh you know what? That was horrible. Thank you, Liz, for sending that in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. Number three, Andrew has a follow-up. Oh, Andrew was the one <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of accuracy or lack thereof, uh, that, uh, told us about his uh, journey, um, from, oh yeah, from Canada, uh, Vancouver Island or something like that, uh, in, uh, British Columbia to Belize. Uh, he was flying a, uh, Cessna 182. Remember we talked about the age? Oh, I think yeah. it was uh, 1950s. We wonder well, why anyway. he went the route he did. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, took a, a, weird, a, a weird route, and we were wondering why. And he wrote in after we talked about it and said, thanks for the feedback feature. As you, will, uh, as you all were wondering about my chosen route from Canada to Belize, I thought I would clear that up. I did originally plan through a flight plan through Mexico as per my employer's request. But when he discovered the landing and overflight fees through Mexico, he opted to go via Florida and the Gulf instead. I landed in Cozumel, Mexico on my return flight to Canada as my departure from Belize was too late in the day to make the trip across the Gulf day VFR. The plane was only certified for day VFR. I believe the one landing in Mexico costs somewhere around $2,000 in total fees. Good Lord. Also, the plane's year was 1956, which is the first year that they made the 182. Well, I never. And uh, he says, thanks again. I've included a couple of pictures from my current flying location, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Andrew, and uh, he is flying a caravan. He has uh, some photos here. We'll include a link to his feedback. In the show notes, so you all can look at them as well. Yeah, nice sunset picture there. Very nice. And nice picture of the caravan standing on its ear. Yeah, well, I guess maybe uh, I'll rotate that so uh, it doesn't look like they're doing a (laughs) vertical takeoff. I think this is one of Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket. No, that's not. No, never mind. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Tom says, oh, we were talking about monitored approaches uh, on an earlier episode he said possibly flogging a dead horse as captain dana would say but please see attached feedback on monitored approaches and a link to uh, a very good explanation on cat 3 from mentor pilot for what it's worth i think it's a very interesting procedure with its own merits even in good visibility conditions and let's see clear skies T-U-V, tailwinds and unlimited um, visibility. Oh, okay. Tom Harris. Uh, 
Um, so he sent a link to that YouTube video, the uh, Mentor Pilot, uh, where he talks about uh, their company's um, monitored approaches. Of course, in the case that he's talking about in the video, it's a Category 3A procedure. And um, and I believe they use Autoland in their 737s there. Now, there are some airlines like um, ours and uh, I believe American Airlines uh, where they have the, the HUD and they have a special uh, clearance to perform low vis, I think category three with the HUD. That's correct. And actually manually flying the airplane. Um, but um, not, not exactly the, the situation that we were referring uh, to, which we were referring in that episode, because we were talking about monitored approaches in general, not necessarily the um, category three types. And uh, let's see. I have something here, some audio, so maybe it's his attached feedback. So let me see what happens when I hit the play button. Hi, BG crew, Tom Harris here again. Uh, just responding to, uh, it was actually a bit of feedback in the last episode, 339, which I've just caught up on, uh, from Simon regarding uh, monitored approaches, uh, which reminded me, I know it's feedback on top of feedback, um, but it just reminded me of a, a video I watched uh, from a, a, a YouTuber that I'm a, a very big fan of, um, goes under the name of Mentor Pilot, and I've included the link to this video. Now, admittedly, the video is on the subject of Cat 3 Auto Lands, which I believe is, uh, which I assume is, is slightly different to what we're talking about here, but I think the principle uh, still, still applies. Now, I will reiterate i'm not i'm not a pilot um but this was something that i i took an interest in um when i watched the video and thought it was a, a very interesting procedure and uh like yourselves um at the time it seemed a bit odd the concept of um uh, taking over controls so close to to landing um but actually uh the way mentor explains it um it kind of makes sense um so the the principle being the uh, pilot flying, uh, which would be the uh, first officer, flies the approach uh, down to, to the minimums or the decision height at which point um, the captain makes the call and he'll be looking out the window, uh, looking for visual cues and he'll make the call to either go around or land. Um, and if it's a land call, then the captain takes over controls uh, or the, uh, and lands the, uh, lands the aircraft. And if it's a go around, then the pilot flying, which would be the first officer, um, performs the go around and um, and then the subsequent missed approach procedure. And something in the in the video that I've included uh, struck me um, and um, kind of made the whole procedure make sense. And that is that the it allows the first officer, the pilot flying the approach, to focus on one thing only, and that is the go around. He's flying the approach. He'll get down to minimums and in his mind, he is always going to fly. Uh, he or she is always going to fly. He's always going to go around. Cue music, Captain Jeff. Um, and there's there's no question in his mind. That is what he's, that is what he's doing and that is what he's focused on. And he in it, it ha- will have the um, go around and misapproach procedure in his head. And that's all he's got to concern about. Whereas the captain can focus on looking outside for visual cues um, and 
um, will then his job is to perform the landing if the conditions permit. Um, which kind of reinforces the the principle that every approach should, in my mind, that every approach should be um, uh, flown to a to a go around. And if you land, um, then that's if, if you get to land, then that's an added bonus. Anyway, I think the video explains it all all pretty well. Um, and um, perhaps it can be included um, in the show notes or whatever for people to look at. Um, as I say, I think he's a very good, uh, very good at what he does, this uh, mentor pilot, and I think he's well worth um, checking out if uh, you haven't done so already. Well, I'll leave it at that. And um, yeah, clear skies, tailwinds, and unlimited visibility. Cheers, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Uh, yes, I have uh, seen uh, Mentor Pilot. Is it Mentor or Mentor? As uh, M E N T O U R. And I'm thinking, is maybe that's another odd English slash Canadian spelling of the word mentor. Uh, but uh, while he was talking there, listen, listening to his audio feedback, I did a search online and I could not find the only thing I could find for a mentor is Mentor Pilot. So I don't know what that M-E-N-T-O-U-R means, but it makes it would make sense if he is like the pilot that is the mentor to other people wanting to be pilots out there. But what do you think about that? I don't really care about the monitored approach thing, actually. I, I'm more concerned about the word mentor. mentor. This might is that a British way of spelling it, maybe? I don't think so, but maybe, maybe um, Captain Nick or Liz, our producer, can can uh, enlighten us. What do you think, uh, Captain Nick? Uh, I, it might be a play on words. Um, mentor is, I would normally spell it T-O-R. So I don't, T-O-R. Think, there's, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any difference. But I mean, well, the points he raises. Uh, I don't want to talk about the thing, the points he raises. What, I want to talk this about. This is an aviation mentor, show, not a spelling show. Pilot. Yes. Well, I'm going to turn it into one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, Owen, Owen brought it up perfectly. Mentor. Men a on tour, tour of men. Yes. Uh, okay. What did Liz just say? She's she's communicating with us from beyond. <laughs> yeah. She says we spell mentor M E N T O R. Okay. All right. Well, whatever. Um, so yeah. I guess we need to talk about monitored approaches. Go. No, ahead we now. don't because we're going to get more later. But the fact <laughs> is that uh, the procedure still relies on a handover control at minimums. Uh, assuming that's when you get visual, which doesn't give the handling pilot, the guy that's going to the landing, much time to get to grips with the wind and the conditions, etc. So if I was the pilot who was going to do the landing, I'd prefer to fly most of the ILS uh, myself. And I don't think the procedure allows for that. I think the procedure means that the, um, the pilot that is flying in, in whilst the aircraft is in cloud, India Mike, um, has to stay in control of the aircraft, and then he hands it over when you're visual. And if that occurs at 200 feet, I don't think it gives you a lot of time to to get to grips with what's going on. Uh, and the other thing is that both pilots should be completely au fait with the go-around and know how to fly it, and I don't think there's a, any advantage in having one pilot concentrating on flying the approach and be prepared to do the go-around, because both of you should be prepared to do the go-around, and if you're not prepared... Uh, unable to do that, then you shouldn't be sitting in either seat. Good point.
point. Well, and, and I agree with you on that, Nick. Uh, you know, both pilots should be qualified and, and ready to go around. And that's really the intent of a monitor approach. Back when I was at the uh, regional level, the monitor approach, because the only way we could get in anywhere was Cat 2, and we did not have the ability to do an auto land. So really, if you take what the what we do at ACME and, and, and amplify that a little bit, really, whereas the captain is looking outside, looking out for lights and trying to pay attention to be able to get some type of uh, visual cue to be able to land the aircraft or continue the approach. Um, the first officer's job at ACME is, of course, to stay in the airplane, monitor the aircraft, and be primed and ready to go missed approach. Either Obviously, either pilot's ready to go missed approach, but the pilot uh, monitoring at this point is the uh, uh, captain and looking outside for visual cues. And the first officer, his whole goal in life is to go around until the captain calls, I have the aircraft. So the reason for the monitor approach, I'm imagining in this case, is that um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's the the way we do it at the regionals without the autopilot assisted landing to uh, to a Cat 2 minimums or Cat 3 if you're on a HUD, I would imagine, because I don't think you can do a Cat 3 without a HUD. So yeah. that may explain why... Um, there might be a little little confusion there, and the you know the monitor approach. The captain really is just geared to take over the aircraft because they don't have visual and they shouldn't be flying the airplane right down to minimums. In, in that case, down to such a low uh, hundred foot minimums. You know, yeah. I, I, I see. I disagree with that premise. I I think taking over control of the aircraft at a hundred feet is a very poor procedure. I think the pilot flying the aircraft should remain in control, should fly it down, and if you don't get visual 100 feet, you go around. Uh, but the fact is that you have got the aircraft under control, you've, you've established the drift, you know what kind of wing conditions, how bumpy it is, how much throt the throttle is moving, and you're well established because you've been doing it for the last few hundred feet. If you suddenly grasp the controls at 100 feet and are then expected to assimilate all those variables in the last few seconds it takes to uh, take the aircraft from that visual point put on the runway i don't think you're in the best place well but i will i will say that it is a matter for debate and obviously some airlines think that's a good idea and many airlines don't there are many airlines that do monitored approaches right well, we don't do it at acme and we don't, we don't do it clear. at acme it's just at the regionals and, and the the real reason that they do the monitor approach is because the air the autopilot is not capable of taking the aircraft down so the monitor approach is just actually very much like what, what we do at the main line and that is that the first officer is the pilot flying per se with the autopilot on to minimums so there's really the the captain is they're ready to take the aircraft, the first office, and, and either one or two things, land the aircraft if they get visual, or if we get to minimums or go visual at some point and decide that the runway environment gets lost or is not satisfactory, that the captain at that point is taking the aircraft around. If the first officer is on the autopilot monitoring all the instruments, just like we do at ACME, the first officer is monitoring the instruments. The captain is actually outside looking for the runway. There's really no difference there. The first officer is flying the autopilot. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, 
Yes. So you've got the autopilot it's, 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 I'm flying the airplane. Chill. The autopilot is engaged. I am flying the airplane. I am. I have my hands on the controls following what the autopilot is doing. Uh, the first officer is over there monitoring all the in, in-flight instrumentation. And while I'm while the autopilot is flying and it's all hooked up and I have all my hands on the controls, I'm also looking, I'm not looking at my instrumentation. I'm looking out the window for the approach lights and the runway environment. And then if, if I see it, see what I need to see, then I let it do the auto land. If I don't, then I initiate, I initiate the, uh, the go around and the whole time I am the one flying, not the, not the first officer. I think I, you know, I see what you're trying to say, Dana, but it's, it's, I think it might be confusing to people that they think that the first officer is flying the airplane. He's not. He's just monitoring. She or he or she is monitoring. Yeah, and it's just it's just a matter of all right. You get to minimums, and captain calls. Uh, the first officer calls minimums, and if the first officer doesn't hear the captain say, "I've got the airplane," and clicking the autopilot off, okay. Now we're not talking about Autoland. Now we're talking about a different well, kind of approach. No, it's a monitored approach. Because at the at the regional level, if you have an airplane that can only shoot a Cat 2, you have... Oh, so we're confusing things again. So I thought you were talking about our procedure at ACME. No, now no, we're no. talking about the religion. No, no, no. Uh, the I'm regional just, thing I'm just compl- I'm comparing them. Yeah. Okay. I'm just so com- I, I see the, the difference. In the regional, it's a means to an end. Because you can't do an Autoland because the aircraft's not equipped, you still want to be able to take down a Cat 2 minima. So you've this procedure has been developed, uh, yeah. Okay. I think in its very in my mind that's a bit of a fudge to get below cat one minima, because it really honestly, if you haven't got all the land and anything special, you shouldn't be going below cat one. If if you want to invent or if uh, the FAA wanted to allow airlines to go below cat one minima, and invent a procedure to do it. I personally would go, whoa, you shouldn't really be doing that sort of stuff. Well, at Acme Airlines, when I flew the 727, we did not have Category 3. We did not have Autoland. But we were allowed to go down to Category 2. But we did it just as we're doing it now. Uh, The captain was flying the airplane uh, through the auto flight system. And he was the one, he or she was the one to make the decision to uh, go around or continue to landing. Um, and, and so, you know, it, there is a way to do this without doing the, the workaround or the fudge or whatever you call it, uh, doing the monitored approach thing. I think it's not necessarily designed to, uh, you know, uh, as a loophole to get below a category one minimum. I think it's more just a philosophy of, um, how an airline decides that this would be the best way to do it. I mean, I see, I can see good things both ways. Um, uh, however, uh, having never experienced as Dana has at the regional, um, the other way of doing things, I'm not really sure I'm qualified to say which one is better. I can just say and, and what that's, we do. And, and that's, and that's exactly not my point. And I'm not saying which one's better. I'm just trying to relate how the monitor approach when you don't have an auto land, and the way that we do it at mainline versus a regional aircraft that doesn't have auto land, the way we do it at mainline, it's still the captain making the call and the whole purposes for the, the pilot that is flying the airplane who is doing the monitoring 
okay, is inside, not looking outside at all, whereas the captain is looking outside because the aircraft is not capable of doing yeah. auto land. It's going and taking uh, it see, down. I don't ones. think that's any great advantage. If you're scanning your instruments and scanning for the lights, I, I really don't see not that, that as being a problem. Low. I can move my eyes between the instruments and the outside world uh, and keep a perfectly good scan going, waiting for the lights to appear. I can watch my instruments, I can look outside, I can watch my instruments, look outside, down, down and I don't what? see any point in me just staring out of the window and losing complete track of what's happening on my instruments while someone else does that job. I just, I would be looking at my instruments anyway, even if the, my job was to look for the lights, I would still be scanning my instruments, glancing outside, scanning my instruments. So... I would probably be doing exactly the same as I always have done, even if I was playing the part of the captain who was looking out of the window, looking for the lights. Because, geez, I, it's not like they suddenly appear in a blink. No, they they do. emerge they, they, in a few seconds, and it's very easy to pick them up. You're either going to get them or you're not. Down, down to 100 foot, cat two minimums, the lights are going to come up real quick if you're going right down to minimums. Well, they're going to come up at the same speed they would anyway. Uh, as soon as you break cloud, in any day, if you've got a overcast layer, they're not going to appear any quicker because the cloud base is 100 feet than they would if they were 200 feet. You're just a bit closer to the ground, that's all. Well, you know what? I'm wondering if um, what Captain Al would say about all this monitored approach stuff. No, good point. You, you think that we... Uh... Oh, wait yeah. a minute. Let me see. Let me hit this button here. Al, uh, we were talking about monitored approaches on the show the other day, and you have done some. So what's it all about? Indeed. Um, at my previous airline, Monarch Airlines, we for a while, until we adopted pure Airbus SOPs, had a procedure whereby if the cloud base was below 1,000 feet, then we would do monitored approaches. So let me explain in as much as I can without overcomplicating it. The person who would be flying the approach would not be the person who would land the aeroplane. Now what I'd like you to do is imagine that you're doing a non-precision, or to use the modern expression 2D approach, to an airport where your final approach track is offset say by 12 degrees to the runway. So you're coming in at an angle. Now, and then I want you to imagine that the weather is right on minima for that approach. So when you reach that point where you have to decide whether you're going to land or go around, you're having to find visually the runway because you're offset, the wind might be affected. So you're trying to build a picture as to where that runway is. Now, the guy who is pilot monitoring for the approach, whilst monitoring, can be looking out. And therefore, the idea was that when the cloud base was below a thousand feet, or in our particular case, when visibility was less than three kilometers, the person flying the approach would just concentrate on flying the instrument approach and they were effectively programmed to go around if at any point during the approach the guy who was monitoring didn't say visual I have control or indeed they reached the decision altitude. Now we would convert non-precision approaches into a decision altitude, we had the approval for that so when you got down to DA pilot flying the approach would call decide and if there was no decision to land then it was go around but what it did is it allowed the pilot monitoring to really concentrate on monitoring and looking out 
which made finding the runway a lot easier in marginal conditions. So once pilot flying for the landing had the runway, he would say visual, I have control, he would then take over and conduct the landing. If it turned into a bulk landing scenario, then he would continue to fly the go around until the aircraft was clean and then would probably hand control back to the pilot flying for the approach. And we also did that for circling approaches whereby sometimes you have prescribed tracks for circling which means that the person who could fly the approach isn't able to see the runway so you'd split the rolls up and it works very well for circling approaches because one guy is focused on flying the circling aspect whilst the other guy is keeping an eye out on the runway. Um, and the idea was, was to try to manage the workload in those last two or three hundred feet and whilst it sounds very complicated under those sort of sets of criteria it actually worked very well. Now some people might say oh well I'd like to you know hand fly an ILS or whatever well that was fine you still had um, that point where if the other guy became visual he would take over. The only times that we didn't is if you had a fault on the aeroplane which affected the controllability so it was a bit unfair for the guy to suddenly get a handful of everything at 200 feet um, but yes it, it, it did work and it did help ease the workload in the last few hundred feet especially when you're trying to acquire the runway but it actually worked very well and we also used to do it for single engine as well um, and it just uh, avoided as we've probably often seen where guys are heading flying 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 and then at 200 feet they look up and the transition from inside to outside doesn't necessarily go smoothly and all of a sudden it's three whites four whites or and it's to avoid that I've been looking in looking in I'm looking out transition where the other guy has been looking out a lot um, so it's one of those things that if you've never done, you think, oh, I'm not quite sure if I like it. Um, once you've had a go at it, it actually does make sense. Okay, right. The, uh, the, the debate is still open. Oh, well, very much so. All right, thanks very much. Yeah. Well and said, Al. That is Captain so true. Al. <laughs> What's that? I said just well said, Captain Al. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but in my mind, the debate is still there, and the fact that there's no... Uh, set procedure that all airlines follow means that there's still a considerable, uh, um, you know, feeling that uh, their way is better or their way is better. Right. And, you know, to quite honestly, in a lot of these circumstances, we just fly the procedures that the airline asks us to fly. Yep. And we can do either if we're required. Exactly. I'll, I'll just finish. Can I say one thing? I know, I know you want to stop, but I'm going to say one thing, and that is for FAA certification. I know this for a fact. FAA certification at the regional that I used to fly for, the only way that we could actually get approved is if we went with that procedure in order to be able to fly a cat, uh, below CAT 1 minimums. So that's the only thing I'm going to say on that. It was okay. actually an FAA requirement. So, I mean, there, there, that is one reason why some airlines do that Correct. so that they can actually get below category yeah and it's for airplanes are just not category but, three certified yeah and uh and then i guess um at acme with the 727 you know the 727 didn't have category three capability and uh but apparently it was certified down in category two so there was no reason to do an alternate 
procedure to allow for us to get below category one. And if you're listening to this and you're not a pilot, hopefully we didn't um, scramble your brain too much. Uh, we're talking about instrument landing system approaches. Category one is kind of the standard, the benchmark uh, approach that we fly day in and day out. And it has a basically a 200 feet above the ground uh, decision altitude where uh, we have to see uh, the appropriate um, things to see to continue below that uh, height or altitude to continue to landing. Uh, if we don't have any of that or whatever, everything that's required, then we perform our go around. And that's why we do this. You, know, you can always go around. Um, and uh, let's see. And then the category two gets you a little bit lower about uh, what 100 feet up 100. 150 and 100 uh, there are a couple Depends. different yeah and then of course category three uh, gets you down to essentially 50 feet or sometimes not even that I think there zero. are some airplanes that zero. go zero yeah is your zero uh, yep. Nick okay yep we don't have to have any visual cues at all uh, on landing uh, that's scary yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think what we expect is one runway light once the nose wheels on the runway, and yeah, and you hope your your vector your trajectory down the runway is is aligned with the runway. <laughs> yeah, there's an awful lot of faith. Yes, yes, but you got to have faith, faith, faith. <laughs> okay, um, I think we've really really flogged that horse, that poor dead yeah. horse. No more monitoring. <laughs> Monitored approach feedback, please. Not at least for a yeah. year. <laughs> and then uh, good old Nev in the chat room suggested that we talk about uh, electronic devices <laughs> doing low visibility approaches. No, no, no. Somebody knock him out. Okay. Uh, six. Captain Steve, uh, pilot mistakenly lands plane at Old St. George Airport. And this is from... Uh, let me see if I can figure this out. Uh, I can't tell where we clipped this from. Uh, no, I take it back. stgnews.com, whatever that is. Probably St. George. St. George, Utah. Bet? Yeah. Dixie Technical College received a surprise visit Thursday morning when a small plane touched down at the old St. George Airport runway, only to turn right back around and fly off. Around 9.50 a.m., a plane, identified as a 1983 Beechcraft F-33A Bonanza single-engine aircraft, caught the attention of students and faculty at the Dixie Tech as they looked out the window to see the plane touch down and head toward one of the school's buildings. A single-engine plane... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's the caption that I should not be reading. Uh, looking out the window, I saw the plane coming down, said uh, Ryan Merrill, an assistant uh, IT manager at the school who filmed the plane's landing with his phone. He came down, touched down in the gravel because the runway has been torn up. <laughs> Oops. On the video, the plane appeared to bounce on the runway after hitting the gravel as it approached the tech school's industrial building, which made some observers briefly worry that the plane was going to collide with the building. Instead, the plane slowed and turned onto what remained of the old airport's taxiway and took to the sky once more and <laughs> took off on the taxiway. Unbelievable probably hoping that nobody was taking a video of this whole thing. Yeah. After leaving the vicinity of Dixie Tech, the aircraft's pilot took the plane to the St. George Regional Airport, probably the one that he actually intended to land at the first time. 
Uh, St. George Police Officer Tiffany Atkins said the department looked into the incident. The pilot is from out of town and hadn't flown into St. George since the new airport was built. The pilot also contacted authorities at the correct airport about the mistake. A check of the plane's registry shows it originating out of Anaheim, California. No further action was taken by police due to the incident being deemed a misunderstanding on the pilot's part. Oh, I wish the FAA was like that, yeah, too. I was just going to say. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, that's all very well. well just a but... misunderstanding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just made a mistake. So I landed at the wrong airport, and I went ahead and took off in the taxiway. It's just a misunderstanding. You know, yeah. Yeah. if you were in my shoes, you would have done the same thing. Wow. Uh, yeah, we'll put a link to all this in the show notes. There is a a video uh, referred to here, and uh, it is, I don't know if you had a chance to see it. I don't think our actual show notes has the video in it, but um, yeah, it's def- definitely worth, uh, if you go to the actual article, that link uh, there in the show notes, uh, you'll see the link to the video, and it's uh, pretty impressive, <laughs> not in a positive way. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, let's see. We had uh, somebody send in some audio feedback, uh, and I wasn't exactly sure what this lady, this young lady was asking, and then I decided that, and even if I did understand it, I probably, uh, at, at really none of us here on the panel, although we're professional pilots, I'm not sure that we would be fully qualified to answer the question and i thought because it involves corporate um flying i thought who better than one of our listeners out there who fly corporate jets uh who better than them to give it a shot and uh i forwarded it to a couple of uh, folks that i thought were qualified to answer it and amar uh yay amar um came back and sent some audio feedback to help us answer the question. So let me play the, uh, the question first, and then I'll play Amar's answer. And here we go. Hi, APJ crew. My name is Eva Ray, and I'm interested to know a little bit more about private jet business, more specifically of how many of big airliners today offer to commercial pilots the transition from the commercial piloting to the private jet business. I'm interested very much if you can have some speaker or some discussion of uh, what kind of contracts are involved in such transition, uh, what kind of pressure and regarding uh, financing is involved. And uh, I would lo- like to know if this business is profitable, is it maybe related to the future of aviation to be more focused on this and what is the future of such business. Um, I'm also curious, are many of the commercial pilots dreaming about becoming one day involved in private jet business? Is this something that is dream come, come true for commercial pilots? Just curious. I appreciate your answer to this question. I have also a suggestion, if you can get someone from NBAA, National Business Aviation Association, to talk a little bit more. I know uh, they have uh, updates all the time and discussions and all kinds of programs, but a little bit to summarize for me 
all of these questions. That will be great. I appreciate your show. Thanks for your attention, and I wish you all the best. Bye bye now. Hello, APG crew. It's Amar here with some feedback to help answer uh, Eva Ray's questions regarding business aviation. I'm just leaving Toronto Airport on my way home after uh, a long China trip uh, coming in from Beijing. So excuse the quality of the feedback, but I wanted to get it out as soon as I could. Um, the type of business aviation that I'm familiar with and I've been involved with over the years uh, is the corporate flight department type. Uh, that means uh, you have a large corporation like a bank, a mining company, companies like the Walmarts, the Apples, and so on. Um, those companies, they own and operate their jet. And uh, in Canada, that falls under the Canadian Aviation Regulations uh, Section 604, affectionately known as 604 flying. Not to be confused with flying a Challenger 604. Uh, that's the equivalent of um, the FAR Part 91 in the States. Now, these flight departments, they vary in size and scope. It can have a structure very similar to an airline. You'll have a director of flight operations, a chief pilot, director of maintenance, safety manager, dispatchers, crew coordinators, pilots, flight attendants, maintenance personnel, etc. Um, the route can vary a lot uh, from uh, a quick hop to New York City and back to a pleasure trip to a remote island in the Pacific or a 14-day business trip around the world. Um, I think Eva asks um, how many big airlines offer a transition to the private jet side. Um, that would have to depend on if the airline operates or if it's affiliated with a business jet operator. Some airlines operate business or corporate jets. Um, like for example, in Canada, Air Canada, they uh, operate uh, a couple of VIP configured Airbus A320 aircraft under the name of Air Canada Jets. And they primarily fly uh, sport teams and charters. Now, um, those airplanes are flown by Air Canada Union pilots, and that tends to be a senior um, role within that fleet. Uh, I also know Qatar Executive is a division of Qatar Airways, and they operate large cabin Gulfstream jets, Bombardier Global Express, and Challenger aircrafts. Now, from what I gathered on their website, they recruit, uh, mainly they try to recruit type-rated pilots to fly their jets. So it's not very clear if uh, you can transition between Qatar executive and Qatar mainline. But I guess anything is possible. So um, I hope that helps out with that, that question there. Is business aviation profitable? Well, it depends. It depends what you would consider profitable. Um, again, Speaking from my experience and the experience that I have with business aviation, at a flight department that is uh, very uh, similar to uh, our flight department, it would be impossible to move the executive team with the same level of efficiency and flexibility that they demand. Um, in fact, some of the destination airports that we go to, they don't offer airline scheduled uh, or scheduled airline service. Uh, to a corporation like that, the jet is really a time machine. It's a valuable tool to get the job done efficiently. Um, I think the, the other part of the question was, is business aviation or private jets the future? Um, I think business aviation is growing at a fast pace, uh, especially in China. 
Um, one would think with all the technological advancements in communication that it would reduce the need for business aviation. However, from my experience, it's actually quite the opposite. Over the years, I've seen uh, a flight department's utilization of aircraft increase. Uh, in fact, that flight department that I was referring to, uh, they used to fly about 500 hours per jet, and now they're doing over 1,000 hours um, on each airplane. Um, if you also look at some of the big manufacturers, Hey, it's Amar again. Uh, sorry, my phone died. Uh, I'm now in my car driving home. I'm plugged in. So uh, I'm going to finish up this feedback. Um, and I think uh, where I left off was when we were, uh, I was talking about the future of uh, business aviation. Um, really just one quick point there. Uh, when you look at the big manufacturers, um, the big manufacturers for the business jets, um, Bombardier, Gulfstream, Dassault, uh, to name a few, the trend is to build bigger business jets with longer range. Uh, so I think that's where most of the demand seems to be. Um, and then uh, to come back to uh, the last question that Eva sent, are commercial pilots dreaming of becoming involved in business aviation? Now, from my experience, I would say the majority of aspiring pilots dream of becoming airline pilots simply because it's the form of aviation that we come to see uh, the most. However, um, I do know a few pilots that have no desire to work uh, for the airlines. Uh, without getting into too much detail, jobs in the flight departments that I described earlier can be hard to come by. Uh, they often recruit from within or you would need multiple references to even be considered um, for an interview. Um, the, the, the base pay is uh, excellent and a lot of pilots in those roles um, are entitled to uh, some sort of a bonus structure as well as short-term and long-term incentives, um, excellent medical benefits, um, retirement, and a few other perks. Um, Anyways, I hope that helps. Thank you very much uh, for an awesome show, guys. Really, you guys rock. And the quality just keeps on getting better. By my count, on that last show, I think you managed to stay above the 50% mark. So by playing this feedback, I'm helping you dip below it again. Anyways, take care. Bye. That is not true, Amar. You rock. That was great. And uh, yeah, so much. Thank you so much for taking the time out, especially you know after flying all the way back from China. Um, and uh, we really do appreciate uh, all the very thoughtful um, answers you gave in uh, response to Eva Ray's original audio feedback. Yeah, and, and one of the only thing it's I did fly corporate for a while, Jeff, and and the the, the biggest thing that I can give in addition to that is that if you compare uh, what airline pilots do versus corporate pilots, corporate pilots are more like chauffeurs, like limousine drivers, whereas an airline pilot's more like on a scheduled route 
i.e. a bus route. So it's 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 a it's a little bit of a difference, like Greyhound or the local transportation system. So uh, you know he did hit on the point that most most pilots, when they ask, aspire to go forward, they they try to come into the airline business. Um, but there are quite a few uh, airline captains that retire that in our country can go fly Part 91 um, and do do some 135 charter because they don't have the same age restriction. So that is quite common in in the the United States of America, at least, for that to occur, especially uh, guys that want to con- or girls that want to continue to fly. So there is a life after the airlines, but uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with what Amar said. Excellent job. Yeah, but in my experience, the airlines don't create a path for guys to do that. It's completely up to the individual to find his own way. That's right. Very true. And he, he made the or used the example, uh, I believe, Air Canada having a private jet. Uh, division or at least a small number of private jets and i was kind of surprised when he told me or said in his feedback that uh, those were flown by seniority list pilots now our sister airline delta uh, has uh, owns a, i think they inherited it from comair uh, something called uh, delta private jets and they and those pilots are not part of the delta seniority list system they are completely separate entities and so if you're a Delta pilot, you don't, you can't say, you know what, I think I'll fly the private jet, you know, side of things for a while or whatever. Uh, it's, they're completely separate. Um, so I guess that uh, there are a couple different ways to do that kind of thing. As far as the people that I fly with, um, I, as Dana mentioned, sometimes when you are forced to retire, especially when the retirement age was 60, uh, I know that uh, there were several captains that uh, ended up flying the Part 91 stuff uh, because, as Dana mentioned, there was no uh, age limitation there. And as long as they could, uh, I guess, get a Class 1 medical, um, they were good to go. And uh, I, I guess there are some airlines around the world also that don't have the same age limitations that we have here uh, in in the United States. And uh, I guess IASA kind of mirrors the same uh, age 65. Is that correct, uh, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, We fly to 65 in this outfit. And what you do afterwards uh, is up to the regulator authority and what uh, you're allowed to do with, uh, you know, your remaining years you want to fly. Most of us uh, feel we've done enough at 65. Some people are suckers for punishment. I think I was having a conversation with a first officer today. I don't know if it was mine or the, another guy that was at the uh, outside of the gatehouse waiting for another flight, but was asking what I was going to do after I retired. And he's, are you going to, you know, try to fly with a, you know, some, as we just talked about, like a part 91 type of, th- type of thing. I thought, I don't think so. I think I may just do nothing. <laughs> APG. Yeah. Well, I told him that he says, what do you do in your spare time? And I said, well, I, do the show and it takes up pretty much every ounce of spare time that I have other than when I'm flying my trips. And sometimes I'm doing it on trips like right now on layover here in, uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, uh, I said, if anything, maybe I'll, you know, try to do even more than what we're doing now. So who knows? You know, there's one other thing I want to add to Iva and her question, and that is uh, there's a huge difference uh, in a lot of uh, uh, corporate flying where the airlines offer a lot more stability and job security, whereas corporate uh, flight departments can shrink or go away or a lot of corporate flying. Um, you know, individual owners that own their own airplanes, i.e., we know one very famous one, 
uh, Donald Trump, who owns his own airplane. Um, but you are you are married to that uh, airplane or that that uh, owner. And if that owner decides that they no longer want that luxury, you know, of having the convenience of the airplane, then then your job can go away real quick. So that's one thing that the airlines, especially here in the United States, offer over the corporate uh, or the uh, business flying world, unless you're in a huge flight department. And when I was originally trying to uh, kind of get some resources to help answer Eva's uh, question, I uh, found uh, an article, Retiring Pilots Transition into Corporate Slash Charter Pilot Jobs, Expert Advice. And uh, that was uh, written in 2014, and it's got a lot of good stuff in there. So, um, again, we'll include that in the show notes so you can take a look at that article and uh, kind of see some of the differences, as Dana just mentioned, uh, between you know corporate uh, business jet flying and uh, the airline flying world. And, you know, the real good news is, Jeff, for all of our listeners that are aspiring to become, you know, uh, you know make their living through flying, both the corporate world and the airline world are both experiencing the same uh, indication or in or, uh, shortage in pilots. So um, the the corporate flying world is is opening up a lot more, and uh, you don't need to have so many connections to get hired uh, within within that realm. If if you're not going to airlines or you decide not to go to the airlines, or uh, you know for whatever re- other reason, but if you decide you want to fly for a living, um, because of the shortage, there's a lot more opportunity both places opportunities abound yes excellent time to hey, be in. let's talk about animals i'll see you guys later oh okay no we're not not you dana but like <laughs> animal animals house? animal house <laughs> no uh next couple of um of items in the uh, feedback uh have to do with animals and the first one sent in by our producer liz uh, these wildlife species pose the greatest threat to planes, according to the FAA. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration officials have updated the protocol for reviewing wildlife hazards at U.S. airports, including a ranking of wildlife by the level of threat that they pose to flights. The rankings published in a recent advisory circular intend to guide airport wildlife management personnel and inspectors in prioritizing the wildlife that should be kept off airport property. How about all of it? Uh, the list ranks wildlife species with instances of, of at least 100 strikes on civil aircraft. We base this ranking on three criteria, damage, major damage, and effect on flight. Noticeably missing from this table are several hazardous species that had not been struck with the minimum frequency to allow their inclusion with the analyses of the FAA states in the AC. Brown and white pelicans black vultures, great egrets, and other waders, as well as several species of waterfowl, raptors, gulls, and shorebirds present a significant hazard to aircraft. Although these hazard rankings can help focus hazardous wildlife management efforts on those species or groups that represent the greatest threats to safe air operations in the airport environment, care should be given to consider any hazardous species of significant mass flocking or flight behavior or habitat preferences. And uh, if you want to learn more about, uh, you know, the the top 10 <laughs> or whatever it is, of, uh, well, let's see. I think we can touch a little bit more on it before we move. Um, Which is the flocking worst? The, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the top ranking wildlife threat to planes is not in the skies. It is 
the white-tailed deer, which has recorded 84 instances. I thought it might be a gopher. No, it's not. 84 instances of general damage to planes, 36 instances of major damage, and 46 instances of damage affecting flight, a category that includes aborted takeoff. Poor Bambi. Now, remember that uh, just, what was it, last year or the year before, the uh, regional jet that was taken off out of Charlotte hit a deer. And uh, actually, they didn't realize they'd hit anything except for they heard a loud thump. They continued the takeoff. And then after they took off, I think somebody said, uh, I think the deer like flew right in front of your wing and you hit it. And uh, they had to declare an emergency and come back and they landed safely. Um, and uh, Steph says um, she's picking up Taco from doggy daycare right now, speaking of animals. But I don't think uh, Taco is in our uh, list of uh, feedback stuff. No, he's probably down there with the gophers. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, second on the list of wildlife hazards is the snow goose, which has a relative hazard score of 95. Uh, the turkey vulture earned third place with a relative hazard score of 63. And the Canada goose ranks fourth with a relative hazard score of 57. I believe the Canada goose is what took down Sully Sullenberger's. Uh, flight and had to land into the Hudson River. Anyway, if you want to learn more about all this stuff, link in the show notes. I want to know what the uh, score is for a moose. You know, you'd think that they'd have a pretty darn high score, except I guess maybe there are not that many incidents of okay. them. Yeah, they're not very populous. Of course, lately it's been or alligators. Alligators, elephants. Nah. Camels. Yeah. Remember, we saw something... Uh, in Africa, where the where an airplane uh, sadly one came into contact. Two, um, two, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're asking about the camel. Okay, yeah, yeah not only sugars in your tea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Micah, our main man, uh, sent some audio feedback, and we're finally going to get to it. Hello, APG crew. This is your main man, Micah. I just finished listening to some of the discussion on episode 340 regarding service animals and emotional support animals. And I thought I would send you this, well, kind of off-the-cuff little message to help clarify some of that information for you. The whole issue of service animals and emotional support animals can be very, very disturbing under many circumstances. And the idea of people abusing that privilege is really disheartening. But I wanted to clarify this. The American with Disabilities Act does not cover air carriers. Air carriers have no requirement to follow any of the rules within the American with Disabilities Act. However, they are responsible to cover the policies of the Air Carrier Access Act, ACAA, regarding service animals, which include emotional support animals. In quoting from transportation.gov, which is from the U.S. Department of Transportation, when asked which service animals are allowed in the cabin, it says a wide variety of service animals are permitted in the cabin portion of the aircraft flying to and within the United States. However, most service animals tend to be dogs and cats. Airlines may exclude animals that are too heavy or large to be accommodated in the cabin, pose a direct threat to the health and safety of others, cause a significant disruption of cabin service, or are prohibited from entering a foreign country. It also goes on to say that airlines are never required to accept snakes, reptiles, ferrets, 
rodents, sugar gliders, and spiders. The website goes on to ask, how do airlines determine whether an animal is a service animal? Well, it says that airlines can determine whether an animal is a service animal or a pet by the credible, and I'm quoting here now, the credible verbal assurance from an individual with a disability using the animal, looking for physical indicators such as the presence of a harness or tags, requiring documentation for psychiatric support animals and emotional support animals, and observing the behavior of animals. Now it says when dealing with emotional support and psychiatric service animals that airlines can request specific documentation and or 48 hours advance notice for service animals that are emotional support animals and psychiatric service animals. Now in going on to ask what kind of documentation can be required, airlines may require documentation that is not older than one year from the date of the scheduled flight, can require documentation that the passenger has a mental or emotional disability that is recognized by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's a DSM, that the passenger needs an emotional support or psychiatric support animal as an accommodation for air travel and or the activity at their destination, and that the individual providing the assessment is a licensed mental health professional and the passenger is under his or her professional care. Additionally, the airline can request the healthcare professional's date and type of professional license and the jurisdiction or state in which their license was issued. So it's really very specific, and the airlines can't get sued if they follow these rules. Based on that, I think the airlines really need to require stricter documentation and not just allow any pet on board as a traveler with passengers. Hope you're doing well, and look forward to talking to you all soon. This is your main man, Micah, right here in Portland, Maine, signing off. Thank you, Micah, for your audio feedback. And I like that off-the-cuff audio. That was, that was quite a research. Very well researched. I'd say, off-the-cuff, come on. He, 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 oh, yeah, he downgraded our accuracy a little bit there on that one. Uh-oh. Yeah. All I can say is he must have big cuffs if he managed to write all that on him. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dana, did you uh, take umbrage with something he said? I didn't take any umbrage. He corrected uh, my understanding. I thought it was the ADA uh, oh, that, okay. that would uh, dictate as to what is a, a defined as a service animal in regards to what we can have on the aircraft. And uh, uh, it, he corrected that. So he did, in fact, correct us. So I don't think it affects our 50 percentile. I don't know. But does anybody really care? I mean, we care about trying to be accurate, right? Right. Yeah, I just. Well, I mean, I don't know. I care if someone <laughs> bought a emotional support donkey on the airplane. I care a lot. <laughs> yeah, I would care An- too. Anaconda, you know, especially. Yeah. Especially if, uh, yeah, you're seated anywhere near said exactly yeah. animal. Eat You ought to know better. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Micah. No, I think that uh, he helped bring us above that 50% threshold. We do appreciate it. Speaking of something that will just make us skyrocket ahead is this very entertaining and informative segment from Captain Steve. He calls it How I Got Here High 12. Let's take a listen. Uh, G'day. I'm Ryan. I am a first officer with Acme Junior. 
And this is how I got here. So I grew up on a farm for the first seven years of my life, three hours east of Adelaide, and my aviation bug can attribute to a few factors. My grandfather, uh, when he was younger, he learned to fly tiger moth. He didn't go much further than first solo, uh, just due to the expense of flying and all that. Second one would be my dad and his, uh, one of his mates bought a couple of hang gliders. I can remember as a kid them running off of the sand hills and maybe getting airborne for five seconds. The third one, I guess, was being on a farm that was quite remote and seeing the contrails of the air jets flying overhead and then also watching the Qantas adverts and seeing all these exotic locations and thinking of where flying could see me around the world and what I'd get to see and explore was also a big, I suppose, influence in looking at getting into flying. So when I was 16, I began hang gliding lessons myself, went solo and then got my novice license. Had my own novice hang glider, but there was this one time I had a few hours up and was starting to get some more confidence. So went up in my dad's hang glider, which was an intermediate glider. I took off from this 300 foot hill on the coast. Felt like, I suppose, a bit of a hump or a bit of a wiggle of the wings just as I was sort of coming into the lift of the hill. So pulled the bar in and increased the speed to get through it. But from there, it seemed, the wobble seemed to induce into the speed wobbles like you'd get when you're first starting to ride a bike. So continued to follow this 300 foot hill all the way down until I sort of was getting close to the ground and thought, well, I don't want to hit that. So I released the bar out, went level with the ground and then had to go up over a fence and flare and land before getting into some power lines. That and a few other factors, I lost a reasonable amount of confidence. And so after that, my desire to fly in gliders was definitely over. I wasn't going to be continuing on with that. Later on in high school, I applied to the Air Force. My first year out of high school, I then got invited to the flight screening program, which is two weeks in Tamworth, and I didn't get through that. And just with the expense of getting into aviation commercially, privately funded, um, I sort of put a hold on aviation or I didn't think I'd be flying aircraft. I just thought it was out of my hands. So I sort of gave up on aviation as a career and continued on with life. So my first job out of high school was a job as a labourer for a concreting company who specialised in making pig sheds for a pig farm. It was quite a demanding physically uh, job, not that much mentally really, but I suppose the experience of working 40 degree uh, Australian summer heat, no shade, and just that smell of the pigs that would just hit you from as soon as you got out the car till the end of the day. And I can even remember like you'd be in the shower back at home cleaning and even after getting out the shower, you you, know, you could still smell the pigs on yourself. So it was time to give that up. And then I ended up at the railways where my dad and my uncle uh, were both working at the time. And then my brother and brother-in-law have both joined as well. And they're all still working there. It was a good job, not that much involving mentally. It was sort of at, at a time in life where I suppose there were some older people within my life that were going into retirement homes and nursing homes who didn't have the physical abilities to even move themselves around. Some of them, they still had their memories. So all their waking time that they're awake, all they've got is their thoughts of what they've done with life. And I sort of put myself in their shoes and thought, what would I be thinking? And to me, I still had that strong desire to fly aircraft. And 
Uh, the thought that I would have is that I'd be sitting there thinking about all the things that I hadn't done and why I hadn't done it. So that was one of the, I suppose, final motivators for me getting back into aviation. Pretty much from there, I left a well-paid full-time job and applied in the university course. And I didn't know how I was going to pay for all of the flight training, but I just knew I was going to give it a real red hot crack, see how it worked out. So in the summer months, the university had the contract for flying the Shark Patrol missions, which was flying up and down the Metropolitan Beach Line at 500 feet in a Cessna 172 with an observer and a communications officer looking for sharks, seeing if they were around swimmers or anything like that at all. And we had a little siren underneath that we could turn on to alert the swimmers as well as uh, communications to let the police know. So yeah, my first aviation job was flying up and down the coast uh, looking for jaws. So in Australia, I guess for your first job, there's two streams. You can pack up your car, drive up north and try to find a job in general aviation, flying the scenic charter type jobs, or you can get into an instructing. And I was preparing to do the first, bought a car and was starting to get ready to go up north and an opportunity come up to do an instructing course in Adelaide. And if that all went well, there was then a full-time job, which is quite rare to get first off. So I didn't really have a, an initial interest in instructing, but the thought of being able to stay in Adelaide, full-time job and a good company meant that I took that opportunity. After the end of the course, I then started flight instructing ended up doing that for a shade over three and a half years. At the end of that, I was then able to apply to one of the airlines. So I got this job with the Hong Kong based airline, Acme Pacific. Moved to Hong Kong, got myself a nice new apartment. My career was set basically, I didn't have to move anywhere else. Did the ground school, then did the sims for the endorsement on the 777. During the sims, there were a couple of times where I started feeling a little bit sort of sick, but thought it could have just been a bit of stress or nerves and kept going. Got through that, got my endorsement, and then my first training flight I was going to Zurich. And the end of my leg, I was sort of starting to feel a bit sick again. And so when I got to Zurich, the next morning when I was getting ready for the flight, it started getting quite bad and that. So I called in sick. I spent four days in the hotel in Zurich before I then got back to Hong Kong. From there it was turned into what ended up being about an 18 month battle with the Hong Kong medical system and the doctors there in A trying to diagnose the problem but also then to fix it. It was turning into a catch-22 position where didn't look like I was going to get cleared for a medical so I then applied for an Australian medical and got that back which I was quite happy about because up until that point, I was starting to contemplate if I was ever gonna be flying an aircraft again. That's how I was being made felt by the Hong Kong medical system. But when I got my Australian class one medical back with no questions, I was sure that on my side of things, everything was good. So I ended up getting my Hong Kong medical back and the company doctors at Acme Pacific were still showing no signs of making the decision to return me to flying status. So here my flying career with them, you know, it seemed to be a little bit in limbo. It wasn't definite of when I was gonna get back to line or not, or if I was. I still wanted to fly, obviously that's why I got into it. and. 
I then had plenty of friends and colleagues going over to the US, flying with Acme Junior. And when they heard of what I was going through, they said that I should join and come over to the US and fly. You know, there's certainly a few things to weigh up, but in the end, I just wanted to get back in the air and fly aircraft. So I made the decision to leave Acme Pacific and apply to Acme Junior. I then had two weeks notice for an interview over the internet. So I studied pretty hard for that. In the end, that was probably a little bit too much study. It was quite a informal process really. Now the hardest part probably of the whole application process and getting over to start the flight training with Acme Junior was the visa process. Just the paperwork involved and all the hoops and everything that have to be jumped through to get that. So once I finally did get my visa, uh, I got it on a Friday and I was on an aircraft on the Monday morning uh, to the States. So once I got my visa, everything happened really quick. So far with the flying, I've certainly seen some differences in flying in Australia and flying over here in the US. Uh, probably one of the big barriers is the language. Being in Australia and part of the monarch still, we still speak the proper Queen's English, unlike over here but apparently we speak a different language at times. There seems to be some issues with that to one point where one of my instructors in the sim, I had to get out a piece of paper and write down words to show him because he had no understanding of what I was saying. I guess another thing is the convoluted imperial measurement system. Here I am an Australian brought up in the metric system, but I have a new appreciation for what these Canadian aircraft who have been forced into this imperial system have had to go through. It really gives me something in common and really helps me connect with the aircraft that I'm flying. So I guess from this whole experience of starting to learn the flying and getting to where I am now, I've got, a, I suppose, a few things to look back on and give advice to other people in my situation. And it's not even aviation specific, a bit more probably in life in general. Probably the first one is perseverance going through all the medical issues I had in Hong Kong. Certainly could have walked away from flying at any stage and got another job and forgotten about it, but perseverance and determination to keep going certainly worked out. And here I am still flying aircraft and certainly very happy about it at the same time. Probably the second one is perspective. I guess on those days where you've probably been delayed, bad weather, you just want to get home, it's the end of a four day. And you're probably not enjoying your job too much, well, for myself, I can take a step back and look at, well, would I rather be doing this? Or would I rather still be working, concreting with the pigs, with that smell in that environment? So to me, the perspective is another big one. And probably my last one would be having no regrets. So not waiting till the end of your life to do something that you've wanted to do the whole life. Basically going out there today if you really want to do it and making it work for yourself. Just get out there and do it and she'll be right. I'm First Officer Ryan and this is how I got here. Thank you First Officer Ryan for sharing that with us and Captain Steve for uh, producing that uh, wonderful segment very and professional as always i did so. take uh, an exception though make an uh, take exception to something he said um, when he was talking about captains he flew with working with pigs 
Jeez. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or did I misunderstand that? Okay. Anyway. All right. Excellent. Um, looks like we might be joined by Dr. Steph. She's still in the latter stage of getting home, driving home from work. And uh, Nick, are you doing okay? You look, you look like you're... Uh, I'm about to uh, pass out here. Okay. So, uh, so uh, when, when Steph comes in, then you can... You can take leave and, and I go will off just to wave adieu. La la land. All right. Um, let's see. We out. Uh, this was interesting. Matthew uh, sent this in, and he said uh, the title is of his feedback is "Unfortunate First Flight." So he says, "Hello, everyone. Longtime listener, first time writing in. I'm writing in to get something off my chest that I feel only you all in the community can relate to. I'm currently a student pilot working towards my PPL. Growing up in the Air Force with a father who worked in the jet engine shop and then later transient alert, I spent a lot of time on the airfield with my old man. I cherished those times. When, when he worked for a transient Excuse me. When he worked for Transient Alert, air shows were always my favorite time of year as I got to ride around with him in the follow me truck and stare at all the different aircraft that would follow us, which to the 10 year old mind felt like I could reach out and touch them. The highlight of my youth was one year the F-117 came and I got to drive out on the runway with my dad to gather the drag chute and throw it in the back of the truck. Because of all this, I always knew I was destined to fly, but enough about my background and on to the matter at hand. September 10th, my wife went into labor with our first child, a boy named Toby. We were over the moon excited and anxious to welcome this little little dude into the world. We went to the hospital here in Concord, New Hampshire, where the time was right, or when the time was right, and she was hooked up to all the appropriate monitors. They all showed everything was going great. After about 30 minutes of being there, our doctor came in to talk to us when something no one ever expected happened. The baby's heart rate plummeted into the 30s. They should be in the 140 range. The doctor quickly rolled my wife onto her side, hoping the position change would help the baby, but unfortunately it didn't. No words were really spoken to me as they rushed my wife for an emergent C-section, or emergency C-section, I guess. I have never felt so alone. I didn't know what would become of my wife and son. After what seemed like an eternity, which was really only 15 minutes, the charge nurse came into my room with her face beaming and said, come meet your son. A huge weight was lifted. As I walked into the nursery with my background in nursing and paramedicine, I could tell things weren't completely right. There was a lot of commotion around my boy, Toby. The pediatrician came to talk to me and told me that although he should be okay, there were some issues. His apgars were low. He was hypotonic. His cord gas was slightly acidic, acido, acidotic. And, Steph, where are you? And uh, he was on equipment to help him breathe. Because of this, the decision was made to transfer him to the, uh, let's see, the neonatal in, uh, ICU uh, intense care unit. Is that right? Neonatal, in, neonatal intensive care unit. That's correct. Yeah, NICU. I think that they say at uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, about an hour away from us in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Imagine my surprise when I heard the DART, the Dartmouth Hitchcock Advanced Response Team helicopter was coming to get him. I've seen DART 
numerous times flying over our house as we live three nautical miles from the Concorde VOR. Never in a million years did I think it would be ever coming for us. The nursery just happens to overlook the helipad, and when the helicopter came in, my heart sank in time with the helicopter lowering. The team came came and packaged Toby up to take him to Dartmouth. As he flew away in the helicopter, I once again had this deep feeling of aloneness. Here, my family had grown, and already our son was taken from us. And then, as I was thinking about it all, a harsh reality set in. His first flight was taken from me. A moment I had talked about with tears in my eyes to my wife while he was still in her womb. His whole nursery is aviation-themed. He has a little flight suit onesies and old-timey pilot's hats with goggles. My heart broke. After a five-day stay at the NICU at Dartmouth, where he was placed on therapeutic hypothermia protocol, he was deemed perfectly healthy and we were able to bring him home. He just had his first doctor's appointment yesterday and they have had no concerns with him and are very pleased with where he's at. Needless to say, we are overjoyed and are feeling a love that we never knew existed, but Deep down inside, I'm still saddened by the fact that I will never have the honor of taking him on his first flight. I know, I know, it's different. That's what everyone tells me. It was a helicopter. He won't remember. It was IFR, not like he could see anything. But the fact of the matter still remains. I would like to thank all the staff at the family place at Concord Hospital, the staff at the NICU at Dartmouth, and lastly, the DART helicopter crew. Paul, the pilot, Corinne, the flight nurse, and Fitzy, the respiratory therapist. Although I may be disgruntled, you had to steal a precious moment from me. I will forever be overly grateful for your services and expertise. Paul, that was a wonderful landing and takeoff. Thanks for reading. I feel better talking about this to a group of people that I'm sure will understand my sentiments more so than who I've been talking to. So, Uh, who will understand my sentiments more than those who I've been talking to. Keep up the great work in the show. You make my drives much more tolerable. Attached is a video of Toby flying away and some pictures. Feel free to share them with the community if you'd like. Many aviation cliches to you all. (laughs) Thank you, Matt and Matt Collings. And uh, what a great story. And Matt, you know, I, I think we can kind of relate to the fact that as dad, you wanted to take your son up for the first time. You didn't want anybody to, else to have the honor of it. But I have to say, uh, I have to, uh, to agree with a lot of those people that are saying, look, that one, that first ride in the helicopter doesn't count. That's not a that's not a taker, I'd say. What do you all think? It's a helicopter. It's, yeah, it's not even a real It's not an airplane. Plane. <laughs> there you go. And you yeah. weren't flying it. So. Oh wait! Hi. What? Surprise! I hear a I hear a lovely My voice has changed. Uh, an angelic voice. <laughs> it's the other way around. Hey, Steph. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. I'm glad you made it home. Uh, me too. Wasn't sure that was going to happen today. Thought I was just going to yeah. have to be at work permanently. A rough uh, rough day at work. It was oh, long. Yeah. 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 Lots right. of little annoyances all day long that just add up to oh, extra time. Well, Steph, you want to catch up with Steph? I'm going to take my chance to ease away. Okay. And, Good uh, night, Nick. It's Thanks, tag team. Guys. So Nick is virtually tagging yes. Steph. And yep. uh, he, Steph's sure. going to take over. Nick. There you go. Okay, Steph, you have control. Yeah, I have control. <laughs> Good night, Nick. Good night, guys. Thanks, Good night, Nick. everybody. We'll get some sleep. Bye. Bye. Have Bye. fun. I'm out of here, too. No, we can.
Oh, I was like, where are you going? Has that affected everyone today? Uh, and I'm going too. No, yeah. I'm just right. kidding. Show's over. Show's <laughs> over. Glad I made it. No, it's always, uh, we always are enjoyed when you are able to be on the show with us, stuff. Mm. And my apologies. Mm. I really thought I was going to be home at, you know, a reasonable hour today, meaning like four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And it's now almost seven. So, uh, the best laid plans, Sometimes right? Sometimes life is like that, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Sure is. Like a box of chop chocolates. So we were, Steph, we were reading this one from uh, Matthew yes. about his son and uh, having some uh, some issues, some concerns uh, during delivery, and they decided to do the the safe uh, thing and and take him to um, to another center, uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock um, Medical Center, which I guess probably is better equipped to handle mm-hmm. some of the needs his son had. And I was trying to to um, pronounce some of these things that he. Was throwing I at us. I, did. I missed your uh, reading of. I heard you start at the very beginning of it, well, and then I missed the majority. I did them all perfectly. I think. I, yeah, I'm sure you did. What was the? Uh, I don't. I'm trying to scroll through here and see I don't what. See any um, questionable words here? Apgar. I know you don't. Apgar. Yeah, I got that. Okay. Uh, it was something about his blood level. The acidotin. It looks like at first I was going to read it as acidic blood, but it was acidotic. Acidotic. Yeah. Where, you that? Are, yeah, where are you? The... Um, well, I'm trying to find it nice. I can't I see it. I should have, I should have, um, uh, I should have, mm-hmm. uh, highlighted that. It's probably, it's oh, here we go. His apgars were low. He was hypotonic. Acidotic. His cord gas. Acidotic. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with the, uh, okay. You leave it like pH. So acid base. Ah, uh, okay. Acid okay. alkaline. Yeah. Well, I think I got pretty close. Oh, well. I'm not a doctor. You added an extra I in there, but that's okay. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you. Or an extra anyway, O, maybe. So what do you think? I mean, you think that uh, that uh, this this first flight, that was his real, really his first flight? I mean, it wasn't with Dad. Well, I think it it's, wasn't. you could just apply an exception to it. I, uh, I think so. Just like the, the stats that they have for like the... Um, the Hall of Fame. Just put a little, little asterisk. A little asterisk there to, yeah. to uh, say. I guess it was your first flight, but it was 100% necessary in this situation. There, you know, if you hadn't, if if you hadn't taken that flight and something had come of it and it was a different outcome, then that's not worth taking the chance at all. So, right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Okay. And um, uh, you know what? Like everyone what? else had said, he's definitely going to enjoy that first flight with you, Matthew. I'd have no yes. doubt about that. Unless you're not a very good pilot, and then he might be scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Being, uh, being your child, though, they, they'll probably judge all your landings and give you grief and, you know, but all the stuff like, that you want in a good all way. All those people that you love. They, yeah, all they, the people that you judge. love. They just, they judge. nothing but complimentary, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff knows this firsthand. That's a good one. Friends. That's a good one. Okay. Um, what do you think we... Uh, play this audio feedback from now it's, it's almost 12 minutes long but it's from our good friend and apg community member steven and he's gonna talk to us a little bit about where he is in his training what do you think yeah i'd be curious right. to know me too go here we go it. hey apg crew steven ivy the airline pilot in training um actually have some time to leave some feedback of where I'm at with all my training so 
I started about a month ago now um, with training with the airline I'm going to work for. Um, it started out with this ATP CTP course, which is basically satisfying the requirements of um, the ATP certificate that you need to actually be a airline pilot nowadays. Um, the course itself basically consists of a ground school portion and a simulator portion. The ground school portion is covering basically jet aerodynamics, high altitude um, aerodynamics, and the issues that come from all that, um, some general airline operation stuff. Um, the course itself is supposed to be non-aircraft specific, but the airline I work for kind of throws in some bits and pieces um, that pertains to the aircraft you're going to be flying. So the ground school's uh, five days of classroom training, and then there's a test at the end um, that covers everything that you went through in the ground school. And then the next four days, you have a simulator training, um, which is in, um, it can be in any aircraft, but I was fortunate to have my sims in the aircraft I'm going to be flying, the CRJ series. So we had four days of sims, and they're basically just going through some basic maneuvers, um, taking off, landing, shooting an approach, um, high altitude stalls, and... Um, low altitude stalls, wind shear, um, white turbulence, and then some general emergency stuff. So once uh, you get through with all that, um, you start in-dock training. Um, the first day is basically um, going through company history, uh, human resource type stuff. Um, and then you get um, your EFB, which, well, it's not much of an EFB, but it gets the job done. Um, we have a Microsoft product here at the airline I work for. Um, it, it, it works. That's about as much as I can say about it. Um, also, that first day, they go through your logbook. Um, so this is kind of interesting. Um, I did all mine part 61, so I didn't really have a lot of other things I needed other than just my logbook and my certificate and other things. Um, but the 141 guys have to have a sealed certificate of completion of a aviation course from their school. Um, so a couple guys had to scramble to get that in from their schools and also um, some of the guys had some simulator time um, which I found out and I probably should know this but I didn't have a lot of simulator training when I was doing all of my flight training, so I guess it didn't really matter too much, but you have to have the um, FAA authorization letter for that sim, so like if you um, do your training at Flight Safety or another major place, they usually have a book with the letter um, right at the staircase that goes down to the sim so you got to make sure you have that um, if you're going to be logging any kind of simulator time that's going to count towards your certificate so if you're in a 141 school and are in a full um, motion sim and all that you've got to have that letter of authorization a picture of it or a copy of it um, for your hours to count your logbook um, so after that NDOC is um, about a, is a week is, seven days long um, 
and it covers basic operations inside of the airline, um, different rules and regulations that revolve around 121 stuff, also covers the exemptions that um, the airline I worked for had, um, so some relief from certain weather minimums and things like that. Also went through um, some company-specific stuff as far as approach plates and stuff. Um, airline I'm going to work for goes into some tight airports that are in some mountainous areas, so they've got special procedures and stuff for going in and out of these airports, and their uh, their plates are a little bit different than a regular Jeppesen plate that most people use. Um, so go through all that, and then there was a test at the end of it, and uh, made it through that. Then um, after that, they give you um, about 40 hours of CBTs, which covers systems on the CRJ um, aircraft that you've got to go through and also start memorizing limitations for it. Um, so then that following Monday, so NDOC ended on a Wednesday after the test, and then they give you all weekend to go through the CBTs. And that Monday, you start the ground school portion, which is actually um, going through the company's operations manual and figuring out the different phases of the um, flight and everything, you know, what you can do in this phase, what you need to do here. Um, so in the mornings, you would go through um, one step. So you would go through, like, the pre-start sequencing or the engine start, so on and so forth. Um, and then in the afternoon, you go to a matrix simulator which is a basically stationary sim that's got the uh, mock-up of the uh, CRJ where you can go and push all the buttons learn your flows and see what happens when you push a button how the system reacts and the aircraft reacts and all that um, then after that you had another session um, in the afternoon which was a FMS lab so learning the program the flight management system um, the little box that uh, you've do all your flight planning in and everything, get your performance numbers, and um, learn to fly with it. So that went on for um, about two weeks and had a test. Well, I actually had three tests. You had a um, FMS validation showing that you could actually um, use the FMS in the way you needed to. Then you had a matrix um, test to see how well you've learned all the procedures and the flows and stuff. Then you actually have the written test on Friday, which um, basically determined if you could move on to the next step or not, and I um, passed it, so I was able to advance. Um, and then now I am out of ground school and then the simulator part, which I guess is technically part of ground school, but moving on to simulators. Um, so the first the total sim footprint's about three weeks long. Um, the first week, um, you're in a fixed-based sim, so it's um, got the mock-up like the Matrix, but it's actually got a real FMS, it's got real throttle quadrant, and a um, real autopilot control panel. So you're actually flying, but you're not feeling the motion, you're not, uh, you know, you're not seeing stuff outside, you're not taxiing and all that. But it's meant to um, get you ready to move on to the actual full motion sim. So uh, refining your procedures, your flows, and everything as it relates to the aircraft. Um, so I'll be doing that for um, four days, and then um, middle of this coming week, I um, 
we'll be going back to Atlanta. I was fortunate enough to get a SIM slot at the um, simulator they have um, next to um, the um, Acme headquarters building. So that will be nice to be back home and all of that. Um, and then I have, I think, I th was it three days off? So the following Sunday, I'll start the actual full motion sims. Um, I'll do five days of maneuver training and then have a day off. And then I'll do four days of um, loft training, as they call it. So actually flying trips in the simulator between point to point, you know, doing the whole thing you'll be doing out in the real world. And then um, the day after that, I have a oral validation. So basically sitting down with a uh, guy that's going to evaluate me on my knowledge of the aircraft, the operation, and everything. And if I pass that, I get to actually go on to the check ride the following day. And if that, if I pass that, I will move on to IOE, um, which will start sometime um, in late October. Um, they really don't tell you where your IOE will be until you pass everything. So, but just wanted to update y'all on where I was at with training and everything and what's uh, coming forward. Um, and I have to say, the training has been really, really intense. I mean, I, I knew coming in, everyone was like, oh, it's a fire hose information. And they are very correct. It's a fire hose of information. And it's really easy to get lost in these deep, dark holes of information where you can just not learn the things you need to learn um there's stuff that you need to know right now to get you through certain parts of this training and then there's stuff you need to know once you get out um on the line flying in the real world um, a lot of um well i wouldn't say a lot but there's a couple people in class um that would get lost in these what if scenarios and you know you you can't train for what if scenarios you can train for you know, dealing with them as they come up, but, you know, sitting in a classroom all day dealing with what-ifs is not going to be the best f for you or your classmates going through trying to learn everything. Um, but if you're able to discern, and, and the company I'm working for, they've made it really easy to do this, but discern what you need to know for the test and what you need to advance, um, it'll make life a lot easier. I know the company I'm working for or, or going to be working for um, they give you a lot of study guides um, you know like you know, go read this, go look this up learn this, uh, know this stuff like that, it makes it a lot easier to go through training even with all the information um, it, it really does help and that they've kind of made it to where no matter what your learning style is you're going to be able to learn if, you, if it's reading, if it's hands on or if it's through watching videos, they've got a bunch of different resources to help with that. So, but um, hope uh, everybody's doing well, and uh, I'll uh, try to leave y'all some more feedback here in the next couple weeks um, after I get through uh, sim training. Take care.
Thanks, Stephen, for that update. And uh, <laughs> a couple of the things that you mentioned uh, brings me back, you know, way many, many years ago. Um, the first time that I had the experience that you're experiencing now. And, and uh, you know, just so much stuff you got to know and then discerning what is the important stuff and what is not. And then I think Dana, as a previous uh, ground school instructor, uh, can probably remember those students that you always have in every class that uh, ask all these questions that are really not pertinent to anything they at exist all. Everywhere. Oh, like, I know. It's just like oh. wasting your time with this. Why? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's completely uh, <clears throat> completely true. Anywhere you go with anything you do. So yeah, absolutely. And, and it I mean, reminds me of also, you know, like, you know, knowing that, you know, like emphasizing the stuff that you really need to know for getting through this, this phase of training. Uh, we used to call it uh, the, the foot stomping um, uh, moments when the instructor would be saying something in the front of the class and they'd be like stomping his foot like we go, oh, OK, that's definitely something we're going to be tested on. <laughs> Make note of that. Foot stomp. Yeah. Foot stomp. I mean, you know, it's yeah. funny because you want to answer everyone's questions and make sure they're understanding, but you can tell one, especially in situations like this where you're going through very specific, um, like logical order of learning things. You want to focus on the basics and then move from there. So when people are asking all kinds of hypothetical and what if scenarios, it's not really achieving the objective of the training at that point, I think. A lot of times I think it's the people that ask those questions are uh, kind of wanting to exhibit their knowledge. I mean, like they already know the answer. I think there's the a answer. subsegment there that are like yeah. that. And then there's another <laughs> subsegment that just like to know the hypotheticals, you know. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Of course. And everybody rolls their eyes and goes, <sighs> do we have to, do we have to answer that question? Can't we move on to the stuff that we really need to know, no. please? Ah. No. <sighs> But hopefully hey, a good Steve, instructor says, hold that thought, ask me after this. Right, right. And then know that uh, that's not something that is going to benefit everybody in the room. Correct. Um, so, Stephen, uh, when you are back in town in Atlanta and you and you have a break uh, and you have the time, uh, have the time to uh, drink a beer or two or other adult beverage, please call up uh, Dana and I. And if we're in town, we'll uh, be happy to meet you somewhere. Absolutely, and, uh, Stephen. Love yeah. to see you. All right. Excellent. Hey, you know, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, one of the, uh, there was a big news story in, on the north side of Boston, I believe, where uh, some gas company overpressurized the uh, gas lines and these houses were like literally exploding and, you know, catching fire. Uh, need, or we didn't know this, but uh, one of our APG community members, Kevin St. John, uh, was uh, directly affected by this, and uh, the APG played a role in helping him through it. Here he goes. Hello, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. A couple of episodes back, you played audio feedback from Arun and flooding in southern India and how the APG show helped provide a calming influence. Well, here's a second occurrence. Along with big news of Florence over the last few days, you may have heard about a natural gas-related incident in northeastern Massachusetts. This directly impacted me as I was evacuated from my house. I spent a lot of time catching up on podcasts, including some APG episodes that built up while I was on a, uh, away on vacation. As with Arun, it was comforting to hear familiar voices and plain tales showing how people rise to the occasion when presented with serious malfunctions. 
Thursday evening, I was driving home from my office when I got a notification that my home standby generator had started. I wasn't all at all concerned because losing street power happens occasionally. However, shortly thereafter, I started noticing lots of smoke from a number of different places. I ran into traffic on roads where I've never seen it. I finally couldn't make any forward progress, so I parked my Tesla on a side street and walked uh, three quarters of a mile to my home. When I started down my street, I saw state police cruisers and lots of smoke as a house two, uh, two away from mine was on fire. As I walked, people were talking about gas issues, so I immediately shut down my generator and turned off the gas coming into the house with the help of a good Samaritan walking around with a pipe wrench. You can see the house on fire in the first attached picture. We'll put these in the, in the show notes. Uh, let's see, where was I? The firefighters at this fire were called from Lowell, which is 15 miles away. As I later found out, there were three house explosions as well as 75 to 80 simultaneous, simultaneous active fires in Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover. This completely overwhelmed the three communities' fire departments and evacuations were ordered. The call for help went out and I saw fire engines and ladder trucks from York in Maine, Man Micah's home state, and from Sharon near Captain Dana's old stomping grounds. Both of these are 70 plus miles away. I saw police and fire team work at its best. They had a mission and they were carrying it out. These explosions and fires are presumed to be the result of overpressurizing natural gas lines. The official probable cause will come from the NTSB. It is now Sunday and the evacuation order was lifted this morning. I'm back in my house and I have electricity but no gas. I can cook but have no way to heat my house, which, if this isn't fixed quickly, is going to be a problem next month when the temperature drops below freezing. I've attached some pictures. The first shows the active fire. The second and third show the burnt house the next day. The fourth is a panorama showing my street with uh, uh, the burnt house and my house at the far right. The fifth and final picture shows the NTSB accident investigation team using a drone to gather video evidence. Sorry for the long feedback, but I wanted to thank all of you for these wonderful episodes that keep me or kept me distracted as I waited for the crews to inspect my house for damage. So I'm wishing you clear skies and winds appropriate to your phase of flight. Respectfully, Kevin St. John, a very long time listener. And uh, thank you, Kevin. So glad to hear that you are okay and your house is okay. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, we'll share this with everybody else in the community if they want to look at these pictures. Yeah, Pretty uh, Great pictures. Scary yes. stuff. I mean, yeah. not much left of the house that's two doors down from his. No, no <laughs> not, not really. very much at all. Unfortunately. Did you know anybody, Dana, that was uh, involved in any of this? Um, I've got uh, two friends. Uh, well, one's a family member, the other one's a friend, and they're both uh, unaffected directly. Of course, they're having uh, one of them's having a loss of gas, but uh, very much like Kevin is. So, um, hoping hoping it's going to be recovered sooner than November, because by the time you're in November in the Northeast, it's it's quite chilly. Yes, my thoughts are out to each and every one of them. Yeah, and all those folks up there affected because it's not a small, uh, small group of people. It's it's a large, a large. populace. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I know it wasn't very long. You were with us, Steph. Um, ah, but that's right. At I'm least happy Nick was able to go to sleep. We heard your voice. 
Yeah. It looked like he was was suffering there for quite a while uh, towards the end of the show. Yeah. If you're listening to the audio only uh, podcast, um, every once in a while, it's kind of fun to uh, just take a look. You know, we include the uh, link to our videos on the YouTube channel in the show notes as well. But uh, take a look at this one, especially toward the end of the show before (laughs) Stephanie took over for Nick. But he was like out of it. Poor guy. It is late. Where he is it is late free. and and he really has been drinking that. a lot of wine <laughs> and those two combined as long and as well as uh hosting you know people i'm surprised uh, you didn't give him any really town. technical uh information to read uh, you're no i should have yeah it was still a very long audio that was that that was like the nail in the coffin <laughs> when we played when we played uh ryan's audio i know or Captain yeah. Steve, excuse me. Uh, that was yeah. great audio, though. I did it get was great audio, that. but yeah. I mean, it, that was, that was an yeah. interesting story too. I I, I love those. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. It just it was kind of like the nail in the coffin for poor Nick because he was I already know. tired. I know. Now, Steve, you know that just because you're with a new company and you're a first officer and all that uh, is no excuse at all for not continuing to do these stories. No, in fact, I, we think you should spring these on your captains now. Going yes. forward, because good I bet idea. some good of them idea. have some really good stories. I'll bet they do. More, you know, just time in a career to right. elaborate on. So, you've been warned, sir. <laughs> HR says. HR says that's a <laughs> that's a demand. You can't uh, deny that demand from Doctor Stuff. All right. Well, um, as always, if you want to learn more about the show, be more engaged with our community, uh, one of the best places to start out would be to head over to our website. Uh, Arash does a fantastic job of managing that site uh, for us. And uh, the, uh, the address is airlinepilotguide.com. And we have information about the crew, the community, social media, merchandise, uh, coffee fund, if you want to become part of that, uh, and more. And uh, also information about uh, the uh, apps that we have for your iOS or Android phone, which, uh, by the way, are free and they're ad-free. So uh, it's kind of a a nice way to be able to uh, watch and listen to our shows and also to send us feedback. And uh, we're also on social media. So, Steph, can you tell us about that? I can certainly do that. You can head over to twitter.com and type in the handle at APG Crew. That's where you'll find us. We have our individual Twitter information uh, pinned to the top of that page if you want to talk to us individually. And if you head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, you'll find community interaction there. I believe Nick and Liz do a fine job of generally paying attention to that and seeing who's asking questions and and making sure we don't miss things that are posted there. And, uh, you know, the whole community is there as well. Lots of people sharing information, ideas, stories, news items, information on meetups occasionally. And for more on that, I'll hand it over to Hillel. Did he make it to Knoxville with you today? Hang on. Hillel. Yeah, he's here. Oh, good, good. I think, though, he might be like Nick. He might is be he asleep. asleep. Oh, slacker. Yeah. Luckily, I have a recording of him. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address, 
to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo one And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to this feedback extra show. It really helped us out a lot. We were kind of getting a, a quite a backlog of uh, a feedback, and we thought, you know, you know, there's so much good stuff out there that you send us, and uh, we want to try to play and, and uh, uh, talk about and cover as much of it as we can. And uh, I think we, uh, we, we did a good job of that today. Uh, we knocked out quite a bit. Not everything uh, that we had planned to do, but I think it's uh, getting to that point now where it's getting a little bit late in the day and uh, we're all tired. So that, uh, that should really help us out. Yeah, and, so, and it was quite a few things that we've had uh, sitting in the, oh, hello, sitting in the uh, to-do uh, folder for quite a while. So some of them kept getting bumped a little bit. Acme Airlines scheduling for Dana. Apparently, apparently, pardon me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it really is. Oh, maybe he's actually going to go fly. Wow. (laughs) That would be, that deserves a Dana wow. (laughs) Yeah. No, that that wasn't Acme scheduling, but I had my phone muted, but I, for some reason, didn't mute my watch. Your new watch? My new Uh, watch. That's what was going off. I was like, oh, you have to mute mute that as well? I'm looking at my phone here. It's not ringing. I just got mine today too, and I bet it's not uh, set up with the same sound settings so i could have had yeah. easily had the same problem we'll forgive you well, sorry about that first world problem oh no problem yeah, that's uh problems. it's all part of the ambiance of our show when your phone rings <laughs> and it's your watch ringing yeah anyway so with that i'm gonna say wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless cheers y'all hasta la vista baby Good day.